Enterprise Digital Podcast with Ian Aitchison and Barclay Ray, navigating the ever-expanding service management maze. Hello once more and welcome to another edition, another exciting edition of the Enterprise Digital Podcast. Have we got an episode in store for you? And also this week, we are doing a a little bit more of a contemporary uh, episode. We, we normally have these done a little bit in advance, but we're doing a special one this week uh, where we're going to talk about some of the issues of the day in, in IT service management. And for that reason, Ian Aitchison has been instructed not to have any random trivia at all this week. Yeah, no cultured meat, no varnishing wood. Nothing unusual going on today, I'm afraid. We'll stick to the main facts rather than idle banter. That's much better. Oh my goodness, sounds serious. I do better stand up straight while we're doing this. So moving on swiftly, we are going to talk about the topics of the day. So um, hopefully it'll be good to get your feedback out there. And um, as we welcome our, our guest from the sweltering heat of the West Coast of, of North America, somewhere out there in the swamps. No, not quite. Absolutely delighted to, to, to welcome uh, Ken Gonzalez to the, the podcast. Hello, Ken. How are you? Hi, Barkley. I'm doing well. Thank you. And Ian, a pleasure to see you, sir. Indeed. Once again, always good to meet you, Ken. We are absolutely um, chuffed to have uh, Ken on. And Ken, as, as many of you know, is, is a, a well-known, highly regarded and experienced practitioner in, in, our, in our field, also an analyst and, and works with Gartner. He's not speaking on behalf of Gartner today, he's speaking on behalf of himself, and I'm, and I'm sure Ken will be able to um, to do that and, and make that point very clearly. But Ken, if people don't know you, who, who the hell are you? Where, where have you come from? What, what have you been doing these last few years? <laughs> you know, as you mentioned, Barkley, I've been in, in this business a long time and um, have been doing service management proper for the better part of the last probably now well over half of my career, which depending upon when you call it the start of a career, uh, is somewhere about 35 years. So in a, in a very real sense for what you might describe as being service management, I was actually doing that before I actually had my first ITIL course. So, you know, my, my background goes fairly, fairly deep and fairly far. And over the course of time, I've had the chance to meet and work with many great people and either both from a, on a consulting and a training basis. And now for the past five years, I've been working at Gartner. And while I am definitely not speaking as a Gartner representative today, one of the key reasons I wanted to actually be engaged with you is because I believe that there is power in engaging with the community. Uh, and was actually quite satisfied to see the work that has been done with the ITIL 4 refresh, the level of community interaction that was represented in that, and uh, your specific contributions to being able to help make that work. Everybody that participated, kudos to you for being able to really in engage fully and offer up your unique contributions. It's a really a pleasure to see. Well, it's nice to hear that. Thank you. I mean, there's so many people who are involved in that, um, as you know, and I think it was very collaborative. And we will come on to talking a little bit about ITIL and Axelos uh, in, in, in context in due course, but we're also going to talk about 
some of the new stuff that's flying around and some of the discussions that have been going on about that, particularly the new incident management model. And we'll come on to that in a second. But I also just want to point, just remind the audience out there, because you very humbly didn't mention it, that you've also been pilot and a you still are a musician, amongst other things. Uh, how do you yes. cram it all in? Well, so one of the things I like to say is, uh, and I, it's, I offer it a bit tongue-in-cheek, but it really isn't. My checkered past has a really good way of informing my present. I've done a lot of things over the course of my career and had a lot of different and varied interests. And the thing that I found is that those are not something that I apologize for. I actually kind of celebrate them because these things actually provide a more well-rounded person to the rest of the world. And they, in, they inform my take on things. So I, I really think that those things help me be more able to relate to people in a number of different contexts and not just be the one trick pony of, oh, I can talk about a service desk. You know, that's, it's, I'm not saying that's a bad thing. You want to be able to talk about that if that's the thing you want to talk about. But I talk a lot about a, uh, a, a, I talk about a lot of different areas, both personally and professionally. And in order to do that, you need to bring a fairly good background of experience in order to be able to do that, and not only be able to be credible on the topical content, but also to be able to take and look at your take on it and what do you make of it? How do you assess it? What's the impact on people that are asking you a question? I do that because I've got that kind of a checkered past that's multifaceted background. I'm guessing an ideal for you then would be perhaps playing a song about a service desk while flying a plane. <laughs> uh, that I would mean, probably I, lead to some sort of airline incident, but I'll, uh, yeah. I'll leave that one there. Yeah. When I said pilot, I did Marine as well. I mean, so, I mean, it's, it's quite a lot of different aspects. The, the, the checkered past has, um, I mean, it's good to hear you celebrating your checkered past. Those of us that have a checkered past, maybe want to keep it to ourselves. But anyway, great to have you on. Let's get into the main discussion and talk about some of the issues of the day. Okay, welcome back. So here we go. We're going to have uh, some very topical discussion. And, and the first thing, let's just cut straight to the quick on this. We want to talk about this, the new incident management model um, that's been released and, and promoted in the last week or two, the um, IT revolution model, and which has um, started to be published and socialized. And, and I think we've probably all got copies of it and have been looking over it. And there's been quite a lot of discussion in social media and so on, and what it means for other models and existing models and what people think about that and what they don't think about that and so on. Um, let's just go, let's just, let, let's just start by trying to understand. I mean, actually also we put it on the notes. I did a little blog, which kind of just tried to lay out in a simple factual way what, what this meant. And, and given that this is the Enterprise Digital Podcast, what's your take on and sort of main sort of reaction to this what do you think of it is, is it something that's going to fly do, do, should we should we all be taking note of it what's it done for you in terms of your reaction so Barkley on the whole I would say that this is a valuable contribution to the industry and we should be paying attention to it if I were to get if I were to grade it on a scale of one to ten I would give it a solid seven I compare and contrast that with the guidance that we find in ITIL 4 or its previous iterations, I would kind of give that a two. 
because for the most part, the guidance is fairly well lacking. While it does say, oh yeah, you should probably do something about this <laughs> and pay attention to it. Uh, it does not offer a lot of tangible detail to be able to say exactly how do you do it. You're talking there about major incident management or are you talking about yes. all types of incident management? Major incident management. And right. it's quite clear okay. that this guidance is not just targeted at being able to look at uh, standard run-of-the-mill incidents, you know, persons mm. using a product that a DevOps team creates in that, you know, you you own it kind of uh, way of thinking. Oh, I've got an issue. I go identify it. I put it into the backlog. The teams work on it. They roll out the fix. Boom. Everybody's happy. Now, th this is clearly a step above in terms of being able to target a more well-coordinated larger scale response for something that's a serious or significant issue. And for me, by definition, that puts it into the territory of major incident. Some people refer to that as critical incident, but, you know, fact of the matter is that I use the terms interchangeably. So, I mean, there's a couple of things there because, because I mean, I think we are talking and, and when we compare, if we're going to compare apples with apples, as, as, as we would say, you know, we, we need to be clear on that, that that's actually this probably is it probably has come out and there's other blogs have, have identified it has come out as a software orientated response technical software orientated response some of the challenges i suppose and and i'd be good to get your sense of that i mean what say it's a seven out of ten and then people say to me yes seven out of ten i'd be always like well what would make it an eight or a nine or a ten what's what's missing from it let's put it that way the first thing i would say is that the from a framework approach I think it does a fairly good job of being able to go through and say, okay, this is the this is the big picture view of the situation. The incident response pattern cycle actually is a essentially a three-stepper, which has a number of major activities associated with it. Two of the key things I find that are really missing here is number one, looking at it from the perspective of preparedness and mitigation. So there's any number of risks that in an organization we can be exposed to. Being able to do a good set of risk analysis and be able to think about the likelihood as well as the potential business impact is a, is a pretty key portion of, of that cycle. And if you don't do that well, it's likely that the work that you've done to actually be able now actually respond to an incident uh, may not be sufficient to the task. And to the maximum extent practical, our notion is that we need to be able to be ready to take on anything. So our response methodology needs to be sufficiently generic to give us the room to play, but as well as being able to be specific so that we can learn and develop specific competencies. Really coming to my second criticism of the, of the framework, and when I say criticism, I mean that it's a, a gap in coverage, really, not necessarily being critical, but an exercise management strategy. So exercises are actually really a good thing because they help you actually in a non-stressful situation be able to essentially pressure test a plan. So if you believe you know how to do this, you should be able to set up the circumstances where you can actually go exercise it, give people areas. Uh, so the job roles that get called out for being part of an incident response team like the incident commander, team leaders, various technical competencies. We want to be able to execute the responsibilities and get down the practical aspects of how do we turn the crank? How do we produce results? How do we act as members of an incident management team? So when the time comes, 
we're not going to default and crack under the pressure and go back to do the same things we've always done. No, we're actually going to now count on the behaviors that we've trained to as a team so that we can actually execute and produce the result that the customer needs us to produce. And at some point, we're going to find that the preparation that we do is insufficient. Okay, fair enough, because now circumstances have changed, it's different conditions. That's when you want to do some planning. We want to do pre-planning upfront to ensure that we actually get that competency level up so that by the time we come to the point where we now need to have our genius level thinking brought to bear to help us work on stuff, we're we're not devoting that to, you know, just uh, normal level tasks. We're really keeping our brain power in reserve so that when we need it, we can actually use it. We're not frying people. So that that's part of a, a larger loop that goes into continuous improvement. And that's, well, if I were to say there's a third section that does not get the love or attention it deserves, it's the connection to continuous improvement. So that's a, that's a common shortcoming I find in, in the people that I get the chance to work with. They don't really understand the power of or the mechanics of how to do continuous improvement. And I, I think that many of the people who are listening to this podcast can look at the framework the way that it is and get a good starting point. But this is not going to get us all the way there. It, yeah. it, does, it does talk, I think, about, um, and at full transparency, I have not read the whole document from end to end, so I'll get some of this wrong. But I think, Ken, it does talk about how incidents are a great opportunity for learning. They should always be treated as a, a learning exercise, not as a distraction that shouldn't happen. That feels right, though, doesn't it? I mean, that, that kind of plays into continuous improvement as in learning what we're not doing right. I think that part of the personnel orientation, thinking about it as a learning exercise, is a great thing to do. That does not mean part of the thing I think that needs to get balanced here is that orientating as a learning exercise and understanding that your core responsibility is to resolve the issue. Resolving the issue comes first, learning comes afterwards. So I think that being able to do blameless postmortems or blameless post incident reviews, depending upon the terminology somebody likes. Uh, being able to identify all of the improvement opportunities, not necessarily just with the issue that occurred. But fact of the matter is, response teams get better every time they go through and do a discipline cycle of action. And we can't leave off that, you know, as a team, as a response team, we can do better. Where can we do better next time? Yeah. So we should be looking at both the circumstances around the specific incident but also about how we organize and manage our programmatic response to a major incident. If we don't put that part in, we're missing a pretty significant component. So, I mean, I mean, I think what you're saying there was exactly what I, I've taken out of it and, and, and thought that the bit that was missing, and, and we'll talk about how this has come together in a minute and go on to that, but in terms of what's actually there, I, I kind of feel that the, the, the bit that's missing is, is the, the human in this and in terms of somebody a live living person who's actually doing that job and would be either waiting or you know in some kind of state where they are prepared to do that job and there's a number of levels of of interaction maybe that aren't aren't there that they I always talk about the anatomy of of a, of a call or, or or an incident you know you got to deal with the, the technical issue you got to deal with the human inter you know the emotional state of the 
person or people that are they're mad or they're angry or whatever. And then there's the business assessment part. So they, I think you mentioned risk, you know, just that whole thing around about well, what yeah. does this actually mean? And the context there thereof is is important because in some cases something that's really high priority today might not be tomorrow and vice versa. And you need some sort of intelligence to understand and apply that. And it's probably again the bit that we've we've always missed is just the extent to which good service management people are actually able to see things in context. They're not automatons. Uh, maybe also empathy. Maybe also that human connection to the people that are badly impacted by this serious incident. Or you know, maybe it's not that serious, but if it stops them working, it's very serious indeed. And that empathy factor that you get for people who are dedicated in that area. Do you get that when you scale it out on this more more swarming DevOps model? Scaling is the question there because I mean, you know, it's great to, to talk, think about it in that context. So it's always an opportunity. But actually, you know, I mean, I don't. I, I deal with lots of organisations. They've got tens of thousands of incidents and tickets and issues, and they've got hundreds of people, and they're and it's on a kind of industrial scale. And and you might say, well, that's we shouldn't be doing that. Well, people are doing that and doing it all over the place. So. Does this kind of model, is this kind of model going to be going to resonate with those types of organizations where scaling has come into it? And, you know, how, how are we going to see, you know, so we've got 300 people in that room there. Are they all going to see every incident as an opportunity or are they just going to try and deal with it and get people back working? I think the default position is probably, you know, let's just deal with it. And, mm. it, you know, think about it from I'm already overloaded. I want to do the minimum bit that's necessary in order to get that off my plate. That way I can get back to the stuff that I consider important. But the scaling factor is really quite an important part, Barkley. So from a, a mechanical perspective, I look at it from actually the, re- the way the rest of the world actually manages incidents. So I've got a, a number of years of experience actually running large scale like real incidents related to missing persons, missing aircraft, uh, natural disasters and such. And the framework and reference that I use, because it's really the, the most relevant to what all responders actually work from, is the incident command system and the national incident management system. And this is the, if I were to say that there's one thing about this particular framework that's been proposed that I dislike, is it's too technical in terms of its orientation. I think that in order to be able to fit into what the rest of the world does, especially when we consider organizations that have business continuity practices, service continuity, disaster recovery, all the way down to major incident management, there's a theme that connects them all. And as IT people, we've not had a great reputation about being able to connect up to what the larger world does and be able to understand it in context. So I think that using ICS and NIMS as a foundation for how we think about this gives us the foundation for scalability. There's not one size fits all when we come to this. Good example, you're uh, a police officer is rolling through a neighborhood and they see a fire in a structure. Okay. So at this point, who's the incident commander? It's the police officer on scene. They see it, they can do something about it. So they take command of the situation. All of a sudden, they, so they're going to call and fire. They're going to have, as soon as the person that is uh, either the chief or the person that's running the truck, okay, from the fire, they're going to take over being the incident commander. And then that's actually going to be where the police takes, okay, I'm going to secure the perimeter. 
I'm going to make sure people stay back at a safe distance. So they do a handoff and the response team grows. Oh, now a second structure has been involved. Now I need to go from the fire chief to the battalion chief. The battalion chief will show up on site. The response is growing. The risk to the community is growing. And this is exactly the thing that we need to think about when we're preparing for major incidents, because something that starts out a major incident is not guaranteed to stay one. It could actually turn into a business uh, continuity event fairly quickly. What do we do then? These are things that if we just leave it to, oh, you know, whatever, it's a, it's a major incident. It's a learning experience. <laughs> and it should shape our ability to respond and cause us to develop new skills and competencies that because we've actually developed those, we can now be more effective. And the other area where I'll call the gap out here is it quite clearly says in the white paper about being able to, oh yes, incident, we must resolve these quickly in order to not impact the user. Well, think about it from a security perspective. If you've had somebody do take some sort of attack on you, uh, security practitioners are not going to agree with this <laughs> uh, because part of, they do recognize that yes, you need to restore service, but at the same point, they also need to preserve yeah. evidence. Yeah. That's so they're going to want to do forensic analysis. So you just can't go and wipe a server. You need to be able to think about, hmm, how do we actually meet both the needs of the person mm -hmm. that's impacted as well as the needs of the security team or whatever other team that you're going to interact with that has a legitimate business need? We need to plan for that. And that's part of what needs to be reflected in this and is currently not. I mean, that is a very interesting take. I mean, so, I mean, I think what we're saying is that the sort of people part and the business and the kind of certainly scaling and, and thinking about how we manage risk, these things are, are kind of the, the challenges, the bits that are kind of missing. One other thing, I think, in relation to this podcast, because this podcast is about enterprise, it's about, you know, Cyber management opening up across organizations, and you mentioned uh, it was quite technical. I mean, I, I I would think that from what's there in its current state, and doesn't mean to say it can't be modified, but it, it did look right. quite technical, quite IT focused. I mean, it's not going to be a, a shoe in um, to for that to be then transposed onto a wider non IT environment. I, I would have thought. I would agree with your assessment. Like I said, I think it's a good solid seven. There's a lot of great principles in here. And I think that there's, uh, if anything, that this kind of like provides the bridge out of the world of IT. You know, we're really tackling a number of factors that need to get addressed in order to provide a more holistic response. So let's embrace that and yeah. make the jump outside and then look to see what the rest of the world's doing that we can bring those lessons back into IT, which, and really to get quite fundamental about it, Barkley, service management predates IT service management by a good number of years. And we are currently suffering the effects of tightly coupling service management to the domain of IT. And this is a topic that I and others have been railing on for quite a long time. And if we only take just a little bit of effort to expand our worldview, that could actually bring us a lot of really great results without having to be overly focused on tools and narrowly scoped practices that are, oh yeah, did you insert tab A into slot B? Oh, 
what a jerk. <laughs> and I think that's uh, the overarching or underwriting principle behind this podcast, isn't it, Barkley? I mean, that decoupling of service management from IT is something we come back to every single, every time we do this. We do, and we end up coming back to the human factor, risk, <laughs> governance, people, management, you know, a whole number of things like that. Um, we'll come on to that a little bit more because the, the, the context of the other thing of the moment, uh, just in, in a second. But one other thing, just where do we think this fits with SRE? Are we, do we have a view on that? Are we, because I mean, there, there's aspects of SRE, site reliability engineering, which have been moving in this direction, uh, I guess, in terms of having a structured approach and a sort of quasi support, quasi maintenance, quasi quality for, for a while. Do these things sit together, do you think, with, with this new this new model? I think the notion of having a, a blended response team uh, where the SREs, uh, the site reliability engineer is a key participant in is a great thing. But I don't think it's exclusive to DevOps or to SRE as a way of, of approaching this. Mm -hmm. I, I think that the, the major incident topic actually transcends it uh, because both people that are doing more traditional types of development, as well as, you know, product own, own teams. Uh, it's just as relevant. Now that said, I think that there's a, if we were, if we place too much emphasis on the capability of the site reliability engineer to be the linchpin in having this all hold together, that ends up being, I think, problematic. Okay. I mean, some, some of the, some of the content in there, which I think was picked up on, uh, as well, you know, which did seem to sort of be, rest a little bit heavy on some of the old criticisms of, of the old models about, you know, how to blame culture and things that aren't necessarily drip, you know, aren't, aren't a part of, of, of those, um, but in, in terms of how they are actually implemented. But there's also one which, which, which I remember seeing, which noted that, you know, incident management almost, and it's in a way of trying to square the circle of, how we used to talk about incident and problem and and actually we should be doing both and we're saying every incident's an opportunity. But also it was kind of saying, well, we shouldn't just be thinking of incidents becoming problems that are then assigned blame and root causes. You know, not, every, not everything has one root cause, not everything has one right. source of blame or whatever we want to call it. So I, I do think, and just moving on to the, the, the last bit of this, which was about how it's been framed and how it's been introduced, one of the other things that's been raised and which I, I raised myself which was just that you know it's you know and there's there's no compulsion for anybody to you know to, to to collaborate but it would it would be nice and it would be good and actually this has come out of the sort of devops movement but it hasn't involved anybody really even on the fringes even those that we might say are more at the edge of the itsm world that might have been able to add some of that commentary and color and and um relief to it that, that we've just started to discuss well, what's your thought about that do you think they had to do something themselves or do you think they missed a, a big opportunity to actually collaborate and try and pull the world together because my my take on that is the end user world don't care you know they, they want to see us all working together so <laughs> Why couldn't we use that opportunity? I, I think it is a missed opportunity, but it's not unrecoverable. So, uh, and this is why I think that kind of my my uh, kind of close out on the topic is I would like people to think about and include 
incident command system and national the incident management system as a something to expand the worldview because i think when we start using those larger contexts you've got multiple so for things that happen in the public domain you've got multiple agencies responding to multiple threats with lots of different types of resources all working towards a common objective and that objective is defined in the scope of the incident so with that as a background there's no reason why a particular framework for incidents should be oh only the sre only these specific roles are required to participate we need to get everybody engaged in a meaningful way and have them contribute all of the special skills and knowledge and capability they've got towards achieving whatever the objective is for either the enterprise or for you know your local jurisdiction the this is the thing that should be guiding us and if you want to talk about an enterprise take that really is an enterprise take what we are in together it no longer exists as oh we go do it things and we only come together with the customer as a result of a shotgun marriage no we we exist in order to help the organization get done what it needs to get done and that's the way we should measure our success was incident management really broken did it need another did it need this you know and, and, and you know and, and i'm saying i'm being devil's advocate but i mean that we we've got yes. <laughs> you know we've got so many things that where we talk about integrated process and practice and so on but actually we've just got now got this incident management and it's focused on major incident really but is is it that the fact that the ITSM has really not really embraced major incident as majority of organizations have got in major incident actually working quite well so i'm, I'm just you know you said yes why why was it broken we could talk about this for probably a number of hours but i think that the core orientation is one that is really the the piece where things kind of fall apart because it groups tend to function as though we're all about our things and stuff. And that's kind of, you know, people are used to dealing with things that are well-behaved, uh, whether it be software that they write, whether it be the devices they maintain or the operating systems and peripherals and all that stuff. It's, it's predictable, right? I can go to and look in a manual. I can go look at a language reference or an operating system guide to find out things and I, am successful based on how much of that I know and can bring to bear for my organization. But fact of the matter is where it actually meets people is probably the biggest gap and set of vulnerabilities uh, because people are, they're, they're panicky, uh, they're prickly, uh, they can be overly demanding, and it's, it's not as clean as dealing with a router. <laughs> I can, I can pull a router out and put a new router in and we're all good. But as soon as you get somebody that's a bit cross on the phone with you, that's where we start to end up losing the plot because it's, it's just hard to deal with. And I would rather deal with the thing that I know how to deal with than the prickly customer. That's kind of like the orientation. And if you're dealing with a true multidisciplined incident, you're bringing people from lots of different backgrounds and you're getting your focus from what you're in together, not the stuff I traditionally care about. And that's really, I think, the, the nuance that it all of a sudden strikes home that's like, wow, I never thought about it like that. That is the opportunity to actually upgrade your level of capability 
that goes from a purely reactive orientation to one that's now, okay, I can see where proactive now starts to fit with what we need to do moving forward. I might chip in just a couple of thoughts as you're talking there, Ken. Obviously, you're very focused on the major incident angle on this. And I was just looking at some of the, the wording in the document. It talks about including developers. Traditional organizations separate developer responsibilities. Even in such a model, developers should be included on the on-call re- rotation. It talks about all types of incidents, which sounds really positive, but I've got a, a, an interesting story that I, I remember from a few years ago. So I really like this transition to bring solving closer to product teams. So the people that write the code are closely involved in knowing what's wrong with it and fixing it. Um, I remember a case a few a few years back now where there was an exercise to do that with a certain number of product teams in an organization. Uh, they were close to all of the significant, not major, significant incidents that were coming in about their code. And they were swarming around it and they were closely engaged in it, but they hadn't quite worked out the responsibility. So everybody kind of looked at each other a little bit. And there was a particular issue reached, let's say, significant escalation stage. And it was with the engineering team that were all working on it, except they weren't because they'd all gone home. Because they were thinking in their typical work pattern and work routine. So they were great to be all over it during their typical work pattern. But the cultural shift in reverse, hadn't hadn't played out so well in that case. And it was just left hanging and unowned because everybody thought, well, the day's ended, I can go home now, which of course does not apply in an incident situation. Maybe not minor, but significant or major. You can't, uh, you can't walk away. And that's what they're trying to do here. I get that. I think that's a, that piece is probably a good thing. Do you agree, Ken? <laughs> Absolutely. We all agree. Absolutely. Yeah. Okay. Just, um, Thank you for that. Um, just moving on a little bit then. So there's the other big story of of, of the moment, which is the, um, and it's, you know, it, it's not as if it's completely un, unrelated. I mean, it is unrelated, I, I guess, but it's also, it is related, which is the sale of, of Axelos to PeopleCert. Uh, PeopleCert have been the, the sole provider of, of their certification products or licensing to ATOs for the last two or three years, be very closely working. Um, And Axelos for sale for a few months, and this came through in the last week, that actually the the cost of that and, and the amount of money is is significant. Um, it's it's So there's, there's quite a lot of pressure now for that whole model and that whole um, product range, uh, which is beyond ITIL, of course, prints and other things as well, to, to really be expanded. And, and, you know, we don't need to go into the ins and outs too much, but to follow on that conversation, you know, the, 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 there's the there's the traditional world sort of ramping up and, and knowing that it's going to have to really expand. Uh, and then we've got, you know, models like this, which are coming in at a different angle. What, what's your what's your take on, you know, where we are with, with that? Is, is it generally a good thing, do you think, or, or, or what? First thing I'll say is that I think anything from the perspective of being able to look at investing in being able to share knowledge with folks, that, that's always going to be a good thing. And the, the question that comes to my mind, and this really is about any framework, certification scheme, or body of knowledge. The, the question I have to ask myself, how relevant is this to what people need to do to be able to serve the people that they're accountable to? And that is really the litmus test. 
So if what we're talking about is the, the, the things that the marketplace says, I must have this in order to be able to do a good job for my customer, then ultimately I think it represents a, uh, an opportunity to do something good in the name of serving the customer. But at the same point, you know, there's, um, I'm, I just rebooted my blog. And one of the things that, you know, when, when the Capita, when, when that whole thing came about and Axlos first got created, I actually wrote a blog post on what the potential impacts were. And I looked at this from a communal perspective, is that from any body of knowledge, as soon as it starts, right, it gets uptake with the practitioners in the community. And at the time, you know, with all the ATOs, with the exam institutes, uh, with the vendors who built software that was, you know, uh, compatible with the existing framework. This is all a good thing because it shows that, wow, there's recognition, there's value here, and we want to we want to learn something and we want to upgrade ourselves as an industry. But it also places a unique constraint because as soon as you start investing money in it, as soon as you start making it a thing, now people are dependent upon it. Well, don't change, don't move the cheese too far. <laughs> don't don't make it too different. Because I've, I've made investments in it, I've set expectations around it, and that ends up becoming quite the prickly situation to be in. Because yes, we want it to grow and evolve, but we also want to be able to leverage investments. And it, it's, it's quite the catch-22. If it's not managed properly, it could be viewed as, well, we're just going to do a, a cash grab and we're going to increase prices and do the things we've always done as opposed to being able to take a more critical look at what is the fit of this with what people need in order to be able to drive the outcomes they need for their customer. And if the latter is what results, then I'm all for it. I think it's a good thing to have happen. I, I mean, I, I agree with that. I, I do think it's it's very challenging. There's obviously a lot of people in the service IT service management industry probably don't like it for a number of actually you know a number of very good reasons some of them you've mentioned about you know the the, the training business but probably more importantly the, the the lack of separation between the authoring business and the yeah. certification business I, I don't most people out there care about that you know the, the potential audience i think they just want to know that it's it's good and it works and it's it's regarded well so i actually think removing the barriers between those two is is a positive thing because actually, you know, as, as both Axelos and Peter have grown and been trying to work together, I mean, I think sometimes that maybe has got in the way that it's it's a bit clunky between the two. So actually, if it's all one organization, hopefully that's better. I think the more important thing that's positive is just the fact that it will be marketed and, and the sort of headspace around it needs to be single and clear and, you know, absolutely global. Because I think people have been confused by the number of different agencies that are involved um, and actually there probably hasn't been enough focus on really getting the message out there. Axelus do what they can but it hasn't really been driven by cap. So okay, PeopleCert isn't a, isn't a massive organization but it's it's becoming bigger and, and that, you know the pressure is on but they will have to invest in the marketing and the messaging part of it. So that would be a, a good thing. I mean we should of course you know in the context of what we've just been talking about that it's not the only show in town. There's lots of other things out there there's lots of other models perfectly you know valid in terms of what they do 
with and different types of models. You know, there's the open group, what they do. It's all open source, great, fantastic commercial product. So it's it's a it's a mixed world. We shouldn't have to worry that it's you know it's the only thing that we can be looking at. But I certainly think that from the point of view of spreading the word around about expanding the audience, it's it's got to be it's got to be positive. Yeah. Well, and I think that's really one of the key points, Barkley, is that if you look at the number of different organizations that currently exist, like from an industry perspective, uh, the way they target specific roles or, or specific needs. So, I mean, look at the, you know, the focus on DevOps enterprise. There, there's a lot of commercial vendors that have a stake in being able to succeed with that. Any number of certificate schemes and badging things and all of these things go into dividing people's attention. And I don't mean that in a bad way. People are going to look at what's relevant to them, what they believe is going to help them. And so from an individual perspective, that's a constraint that we need to manage as individuals. Yeah, I I want something that's going to be beneficial to my career. At the same point, I need need to ensure that it's actually relevant to the thing I need to produce for the customer. Where am I going to take any precious training dollars I do have, whether I'm self-funding that or my organization is funding that? Where am I going to invest that to get the best return? And with the multitude of certification schemes out there and different training opportunities and bodies of knowledge we can actually look at, how how do we reasonably expect that that's going to pan out? I think that there's a significant case to make here that people who are already invested in ITIL as a framework and in IT service management are predisposed to want to go through and say, yeah. I'm going to place, I'm going to double down. I'm going to place my bets here. But is that indicative of what's happening in the broader market? Is that ultimately what's going to end up having to be successful? And with all of the different players and things that they could pay attention to, I, I think it's less certain that that's actually going to be a, oh, of course that bet will be successful. And and there's a, a lot of money now. It's, it's probably best part of $500 million, I guess, you know, is, is, is the cost of, of, so it's a lot of money and the, the pressure is kind of one. One, one quick point on this um, before we kind of round up, which I think is really, it, it came up on Twitter a couple of times and, and um, one of my old contacts who's involved in education has raised it a couple of times, uh, Sandra Whittleson. There's a great opportunity still to, to develop service management, knowledge and training and education earlier you know for the school college type level not just for organizations do, do you think that's something that people certainly need to be looking at absolutely i i would go as far as being able to say that the the core connection here is between product management and service management representing that they are connected at the hip uh they're part of a continuum uh and the first person to really call that out was you know, my friend Ian Clayton and being able to write about that and the work that he did. But, you know, fact of the matter is that if if we can start with how we connect the specific things that a particular certificate scheme or training program actually connects to broader principles, the more successful we're actually going to be. Because now it, we're not having to go through and invent something from scratch. We're actually able to leverage broader approaches and bodies of work that have been tested over time to show that they produce results. And I think that could only provide goodness. If more training comes into education, comes into younger people going through education, yeah. considering their careers, reflect back to our conversation about 
service management needs to break free from IT. So maybe this isn't IT training for people. This is service management or business training for people as they're developing their careers. Absolutely. I would hate to have a situation where the generations that come are, are coming up now and come after them end up suffering the same slings and arrows that we had to suffer as part of getting our footing in, in business and helping to evolve things. That would be tragic. It's a shame this isn't on, on, on video because I could turn around and you could see all the marks in my back <laughs> where I've been shot with the arrows of okay ken thank you very much that that's that's a really great conversation let's 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 wrap it there okay so i mean i think we've we've put the world to rights there we've we've looked at the new the new model and the, there's lots of good things in there there's lots of things to to look at and i i guess the point coming out of that is that we we want to collaborate we want to be involved we want to be, you know take the opportunity we've looked at the new commercial structure for um idle and so on and that obviously is, is again is an opportunity hopefully we'll look at the positive side of that now on to the serious question um which ian the honor of, of asking you ken i will roll the drum and draw back the curtain and turn yeah. the spot uh-oh and uh, ask yeah. you to uh, step up to the microphone Sing us a song about service management and no, in fact, give us a recommended podcast uh, bar drink. What would you put on the bar, Ken? Uh, the thing I think that I would like to recommend as the bar drink is by uh, I love beer. So specifically stouts and porters. Uh, they, they are my absolute favorite. Heavy. And uh, but I'm also a good I'm a fan of a good Belgian as well. There's a small brewery in Bend called Monkless. Uh, and they do a number of Belgian ales. And one of the ones I've had recently that I am a huge fan of is called the FNG. So Monkless Belgian Ales, the FNG. That's the one that if I had the ability to uh, get you a, a growler so you know we could all share a pint, I would love to be able to do that because it's absolutely delicious and satisfying. Great. And I've also learned from that that you are a fan of a good Belgian as well, which is. Uh, <laughs> I was going to, yeah, I didn't like to say, but uh, <laughs> don't we all love a good Belgian <laughs> when, when, we, when we need one? Okay, that's great. That will be going up in the bar. Um, the bar is, is, is nearing completion I, I, or, or publication. I think it, it will be available soon and we'll, we'll put that out on social when it's ready. Uh, um, that's great. But um, Ken, thank you very much for your contribution. Great to have you on here um, and appreciate your uh, what you've been saying and, and the fact that you're willing to, to join us uh, on this uh, on, on this podcast. Um, how, how do people find you, Ken? You mentioned that you've restarted your blog. So where would people find you? Yeah, so uh, I would encourage them to go to www.kennethgonzalez.com. There's, and if anybody has suggestions about something they'd like to hear about from me or uh, just wants to chat, uh, there's a, an about me link or where you could actually go and just send me a message. Uh, I do my best to reply to all of them and I look forward to hearing about it. And also thanks to you two for the opportunity to start reintroducing myself to the rest of the world. This is something that I've been wanting to do for a long time, and my workload has kind of shifted so that I now have more of an opportunity to do so. And I'm just uh, 
pleased as punch to spend some time with you too. It's been great. Thank you. Oh, we're delighted that you're here as well. Next time we'll get a good Belgian on as well. It has been a pleasure. Thank you. <laughs> okay. Um, thanks very much, everybody. Um, this this will be going out pretty much at, at, at the time that we've recorded. So um, we'll see you soon on the next the next session. Thanks for joining us. Thanks. Bye.